0: Naming it can be difficult because we've not raised ourselves in a way where we know how to name anything other than good or bad or sad, happy. Um, our ability to be okay with coexisting in the long range of emotions is unfortunate. We've told people that anxiety is, is not good, not good. No, actually it serves us really well as human beings. We've needed a degree of anxiety to be able to function and evolve as human beings. There is good anxiety that exists. It's there.
1: Welcome to the Outperform Podcast. My name is Scott Welly. I'm an author, speaker, and the founder of Outperform the Norm, a global movement that helps people achieve peak performance in their personal and professional lives. I've spent my life working with top performers in business, as well as athletics, And each week, it's my aim and mission to bring you an inspiring person to share their personal stories and insights, or perhaps it'll be a personal message from me, but with one very simple goal in mind, to help you outperform. Your time is precious, and I want to thank you for spending it with me here today, but just one small ask before we get started. If you find value from this podcast, the greatest way that you could possibly thank me would be to head on over to iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast platform happens to be and give it a five-star review. Also share it with somebody that you know that you would like to help outperform so we can all grow this movement together and strive to make the world a healthier, happier, higher-performing place. Once again, thank you for being here, and without further ado, let's get started. Brooke Baez, welcome to the Outperform Podcast. How are you?
0: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm great.
1: We appreciate you being here. Brooke, what does it mean to you to outperform in your life, and how do you define outperforming?
0: Okay, goodness. This is a very curious question. Um, As I've been through my life, I have only looked at performance in performance, not necessarily outperforming. So when I think of now where I am in my life, not as an athlete, but as a mother, as a business owner, as a student, as someone in the field that's hoping to make long lasting impact, when I think of what outperformance feels like for me, it is a feeling. It is a, I am a slow growth performance for me is steady, constant, consistent. There's a really great quote from Mia Hamm um, about um, building a fire. And every day that I'm training, every single day that I'm training, I'm building that fire. And at the right moment, I know when to, to light the match. And I think that that outperformance is the difference between um, sort of prepping that fire and getting the right law, however you want to kind of create metaphors around her quote, but knowing when to light the match and then how to steward sort of like, if you're thinking again about the fire, um, how to foster that fire and keep moving forward. Um, I think part of that for me is also patience, patience, patience. So when I think of outperformance, I don't also always correlate it with patience, but it's a big part of my ability to look around and see that I'm probably outperforming others, particularly in my field, but knowing to be patient with my steady performance and that there will be a day when I can be happy with the way that we're showing up. So um, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, I, that quote just kind of stuck with me the other day. Someone shared it with me. And
1: so uh, talking about Mia Hamm, obviously unbelievable soccer player. Do you have an athletic background yourself?
0: Yes. I, and I actually, I trained with her for a very hot minute in a very muggy August month way back in like circa 1997. I had the fortunate chance to be On a bench bench team um, at a program at the University of North Carolina, I was a rising senior in high school, and we scrimmaged. There were a group of high school girls that got selected to scrimmage against um, their bench players, but we watched Mia, Christine Lilly, and a bunch of other players that came back to UNC play their, like, starting squad. So we watched them practice, we shadow practice, and then we played against – their bench team. So anyway, long story short, it was like one of those surreal experiences. Um, I have a letter that Anson Dorrance wrote me that summer and I have it stuck next to my mirror and I read it every day because it helps me keep myself in check with my performance and uh, where I am and what I need to do to be ready to light the fire. So um, I played all the way through high school, um, got to Kalamazoo College, played at K college and then tried to play like in good old fashioned, like co-ed leagues after college. Um, And then just really, I enjoy my knees and ankles too much. I decided like my career was over. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put it this way. I didn't have like a professional career in my pathway, but I would have loved to keep playing. But there's just a day where you start to look at like, young adult soccer leads, leagues leagues post college and you realize there's half the people on the field really think they're still in college playing or that they're in the MLS and the all the rest of us really just want to keep playing competitively but we know where we are. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's no pro path for me here. So can we have some nice competitive play? I didn't experience that in the leagues that I played in. It was just really hacky and tic tacky and I can I really felt like I was going to have an injury that I didn't need to, to have on a co-ed 7 p.m. Wednesday night league, so. Yeah, so
1: we're going to get into what you're doing professionally in a second, but tell me what are some of the biggest lessons you think you learned as an athlete, in particular maybe as a soccer player, that you've taken with you towards your personal, professional, educational life that have allowed you to outperform and get to the point that you are now?
0: Uh, yeah, there's, there's a handful of consistently shown up one is what do you do when there's pressure on the ball so how do you perform when you've got you have possession and there's pressure how are you able to remain consistent and then in my case I was a midfielder how do you literally distribute the ball and make that decision Um, and how does sort of courage and drive factor into that especially with fatigue Uh, Depending, you know, if we're comparing it to a game where we are, if we're in the 10th minute or the, you know, well into uh, beyond halftime. So um, for me, confidence and trusting my skill set. So I think in entrepreneurship, it's very easy to have a real strong instinct in your ability Um, But because for me, professionally, I look around and no one else is doing what we're doing, it can feel a little, you can really second guess yourself as an entrepreneur. And so, again, taking that back to my performance as a soccer player, um, I was always coached to like trust my instincts, trust my ability, trust my ability to outperform my my opponent um, and to do it with conviction. I had a soccer coach in college that it, I mean, just screamed that at us with conviction. So don't just do it hard. Don't just work your ass off. Do it with conviction. Every single move, every single time you step on the field, do it with conviction. Um, and he was the same guy that also, you know, for females on an athletic team, there's a lot of like, oh, nice try. Next pass will work out. There's a little bit of uh like, good job even though you may have like messed up in that last drill um Mm -hmm. and he did not tolerate that at all um no that wasn't great
1: is is conviction (laughs) the same thing as is conviction the same thing as being intentional
0: Ooh, um yes I would I believe both of those go hand in hand for sure um conviction isn't to me it feels closer to intentionality than it does like just hardcore work because you can put a lot of work and you can work really hard towards something a lot and it may not have the same results. So yeah, I feel like the conviction piece, what that has is this extra layer of intentionality. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um,
1: so uh, let's, let's get into a little bit of what you're doing professionally. So, you are. Would you call yourself the founder or the president of Blend? Is that is
0: founder? founder? I never use president, but I will take that. <laughs> well, Maybe I will wave that flag around yeah. for a bit. <laughs> yeah,
1: founder, president, CEO. Yeah. You can call yep. yourself whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, but you're you're the founder of Blend, and I wrote this out off of your website, which emphasizes accountability, value relationships, and offers a strength based off the couch approach to mental health and i know a lot of what you do also incorporates health and wellness. Tell me a little bit more just about blend in general, what makes you different and how you got to the point where, you know, you're obviously doing great things with the organization, you're expanding, you're helping a lot of people. How did you get started in that? What made you want to go into it and what makes you different as far as how you approach mental health?
0: Yeah, so i uh, you know traditionally was raised in the social work field. So I say raised because I um, received my master's degree in social work um, and then served the the public community with a a variety of hats I wore as a social worker. Um, I say that because that's still a really strong foundation as a social worker. Our You know, how we are educated and informed about mental health is to look at the bigger picture, to look at an individual and how we can support that individual as they improve their well-being to impact a community. So that's a big part of my foundation. Uh, Along my grad studies and my early career as a therapist, though, I recognized many moments where I in my gut and in my heart felt, gosh, can't we do this better? Mm -hmm. Like, I understand that this kind of works over here. Um, I I was constantly running into walls where I felt that uh, a script was creating a big distance between me and my client. No matter where I was doing my work, if I was doing public school social work, if I was doing home-based intervention, if I did medical school social work, private rehab facilities, it all started to look the same where there was a big distance between the client's voice and the script that I was told to stick to, Mm -hmm. which was, we're going to diagnose you with this. We're going to treat you with this modality because that's what insurance says. And then we're going to run you through this treatment pattern. Um, And then that label may or may not stick to you. So I kind of just collected that along the way during my grad school work and throughout my early career as a therapist. I collected it in a journal. I mean, I still have the journal. I mapped out what I felt would be a way in which I could stay in this career for my entire life. Cause I felt like, wow, this is going to, I'm going to get burnt out of the job itself and, or I'm going to get burnt out of the lack of creativity around this field. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I don't doubt we have a many, many very creative and heart filled therapists and mental health professionals in the world, but the greater system has not been serving us very well when we keep kind of following this, this map. So, um, I just paid attention to what I was learning. I'm a, I'm an experiential learner. So, um, for me, all of those moments through grad school, all of those positions that I was in, I was collecting and I was pulling them along. I guess if we go back to the metaphor around the fire, I was building my fire and it Mm -hmm. was there. The wood was there. I was doing my little teepee. I was getting it all prepped. And I got to a point in my career where I, really physically and emotionally was becoming burnt out of my inability to have appropriate like work life rhythm with my personal life and my professional life. And I was really getting sick and tired of communicating to people that they would probably be in this cycle of sickness for a while. Um, so I lit my match, quit my job about four years ago that had, I was in a really great position for a variety of reasons at that point in my life. Um, but just could not it was rubbing so far against like my integrity and my creativity and my desire to do something different and to take a risk and just to try, um, providing empowerment and autonomy to clients rather than these scripts in this paradigm that kind of keeps people sick. So, um, I launched my business like a week after I quit my job. Um, which was scary for our household and scary for me. Um, I took everything that I had written down in that journal and put myself out there and communicated to prospective clients. Here's what I'm going to try with you. I was very transparent and I still am, but, um, we're going to try all these holistic approaches with you. I'm going to meet you at your house. I'm going to drive to your psychiatrist visit with you. Um, I'm going to be your family therapist, your individual therapist. At that time, I was wearing like literally every hat that I possibly could. I'm going to cook with you. We're going to go on a run. We're going to go to yoga. Um, It was real like testing a little bit too, testing all the ideas and the hunches and the things that came up in my gut throughout my career. And I am so grateful. I had clients in the beginning that were really willing to take all of those on and from them. We've created a nice formula, for lack of better words, or a recipe that we feel like we're really, um, our key differentiators include very customized, curated client services. So um, we don't utilize the diagnostic criteria. Um, We have clinical licensed therapists that work for us. But when folks come to us, uh, we are working on Understanding the person first, developing a relationship, and then creating a plan together with the client to have full ownership over their treatment and recovery. Um, we don't always get clients that want to come on board when they hear that they're doing much of the, they're a big part of the co authorship. We're not here to fix, we're not here to tell. We're not here to put together even a plan for you until we get to know you and we work side by side with you to create something that's going to be sustainable. Um, And hopefully you're not in therapy the rest of your life. Um,
1: Is there a specific area of mental health that you work with or is it literally just anybody that needs to get maybe from point A to point B?
0: Yeah, great question. Yes, now point A to point B, we found that our, our client. Is not a specific profile as it is their willingness to commit to this very organic approach and style. So, when I started, it was mostly with folks that were discharged from residential treatment centers for addiction and mental health diagnosis or acute care. So, these are individuals that may go to an ER for a crisis or stay in a residential facility for about 30, 45 days. So, I started the business with that very specific population. Um, and I thought I may stick with them. It's still a big part of who we serve um, because we do do things much differently than some of the traditional recovery and addiction um, systems. Now we have a wide range of ages, anywhere from 11 to 65, men, women, uh, across point A to point B. We have Clinicians that have very niche roles and in a clear lane of expertise. Mm -hmm. However, we work as an integrative team together to determine where that client might fit well first, even if they move around clinicians on our team. So it's not rare that a client comes on board with us and might start working with one of our therapists around maybe some family stuff that they have going on in their home, but they may then need additional support with career or performance pieces. And we have a a practitioner that that's his specialty. He's got his PhD in sports and performance. So, uh, it is matchmaking. We take a great deal of consideration into the onboarding process, uh, to get folks matched with a practitioner where they feel confident and empowered to to co-author their plan. So, you know, the only populations that we, Scott, are very mindful of and that we facilitate an additional level of care is, like, really severe psychiatric cases. We've maybe only had two or three in the past four years. Um, And we can identify those early on in our clinical intake. Um, And that's just another level of we need psychiatric support when it comes to like really um, severe personality disorders. Um, But we take on a lot of crisis cases, a lot of high suicide risk assessments. um, And lots of folks who are in active addiction, we are we welcome them on board with with open arms.
1: Yeah. So I know in my case, I deal with performance enhancement and this is maybe me not fully appreciating or understanding the mental health field but you brought up the blend recipe before so when people come in to work with you is there a most important ingredient in your recipe or is there a starting point where when people of maybe all shapes and sizes and different things that they're struggling with is there one thing that you say, you know, this is our starting point, this is the most important ingredient, and this is really the foundation of everything we're going to do?
0: I would say it's our our consultation. So we that is um, a starting point before a client even becomes a client. We spend a great deal of time in the consultation phase discovery phase however you choose to so that's someone has engaged with us they are almost ready to onboard with us but we intentionally and with a great deal of transparency let them know that we're going to spend about one to two hours with them in a pretty like it is not a clinical assessment it's diving in quickly and with a great deal of intentionality to unearth like what has worked, what hasn't worked, Uh, you are part of the dialogue. So usually that ingredient is us showing up with a great deal of authenticity and uh, expertise and knowledge and being able to say you're going to experience this throughout the duration of your time with our team and with our company. Um, That is a key ingredient for us in terms of meeting the client exactly where they're at and letting them know that uh, we will work side by side with their voice and make them a big part of the process that that we're not going to put a plan together so that it can be hard for folks because a lot of people like plans, especially at the beginning. Um, And we certainly start to develop those further down into someone's journey with us, whether it is, Acceptance commitment therapy, whether it's mindfulness and meditation or performance based um, training. So that shows up, but we are looking to connect with that individual, their story and sort of their value systems, wherever their values might sit at that moment. So that happens in those first two consultations. We're able to gather that. We consistently get feedback that our those first two sessions feel incredibly different than any other therapeutic experience that they've had. Um, we know why that is. I mean, we, we approach it in a very conversational dialogue We keep them very, very engaged. Um, and that this is not going through an assessment and checking boxes. And, um, we have that in our head. We know how to keep an eye out for all of that, but it's very conversational. We want to get to know all parts of them, not just the, Unfortunate, sad, painful things that you have more in your life, and those are assets. We're huge on yes, this happened to you, with you, you experienced this. Look at all this other, look at all the treasures that are around you as well. And that we're helping you see how you can coexist those things together. So, um, we have a great sense of humor, and we do that with um professionalism, but I believe clients experienced that during our first two consultations as well in terms of like, this is here, but you can also live a really productive, high functioning, high performing life, Mm -hmm. even with this shit over here, that's been stirring up. We're here to help you unpack that. And we're here to help you unpack this too. We're not going to keep our light shined on all of this the entire time.
1: So one thing I'm a little bit curious about from a business standpoint is, you know, It certainly has its drawbacks if we're talking about, okay, I'm going to run you through a script or I'm going to run you through a standardized assessment, and that's just the way that it's always done. But the benefit of that is if someone comes to me or if someone comes to you or if someone comes to another mental health practitioner, they know that the people are doing it exactly the same way. I don't know if systematized is the right word, but you just know that it's replicated and you know that it's being done the same way. So how do you blend, I guess, having a systematized approach or a recipe that people are using with clients, yet allowing that to be fluid enough where it's conversational and, you know, you can, you can really make the person feel like it's tailored for them. But, but they're getting a consistent experience, I guess, maybe between you and somebody else. I'm sure it's something that you thought about. Um, Oh, sure.
0: Yeah. Um, So with the consultation and the pre-onboarding, we have the same three individuals that are running those consultations. So we don't really, so that's consistent in the respect that those three have been doing it. One has been doing it for almost three years. The second person um, has a strong clinical background as a registered nurse. Um, So, uh, working with her to destructure what she's used to doing in a clinical way and being able to like, keep it there. We do have an internal documentation that we are feeding that information into to -hmm. make sure that we are covering that. Um, We're transparent with clients during that process that we are looking at, you know, part of this conversation, whether you know it or not, we have assessed um, family history, trauma history, uh, substance use, So that's consistent there in the sense of internal operations. Uh, From a consistency standpoint, with clients having, I I guess, the same experience, is where our culture and our team members make a big difference. I mean, we spend a lot of time making sure we are hiring people who have been in the fields. My team has been in the clinical field, four of them, five, including me. We're all above the age of 40. So it's been a long time that we've been doing this work. So some of it is I'm hiring you because I trust that you have sharp clinical skills. You have a proven, you've performed and here's your space to do it. And um, as a company, we're getting to a space where then, yes, how can we start to gather data from our clients that continues to inform that ever so slight kind of that we're trying to pull apart between a really wildly organic curated experience, but also making sure that we have measurables along the way. Um, we're starting that actually this fall. We're in a good position to be able to start actually cultivating some of that. But um, I have a lot of, you know, when I started the business, I knew I would not be doing this alone. Uh, I knew that I would be for a while and I'd be wearing like every hat under the sun, but part of my vision And mission is not only for clients, but it is for practitioners. So I built the business, yes, to serve clients in a holistic, sort of unconventional manner around mental health. I also built it for all the clinicians that are rapidly getting burnt out or are seeking a space to be able to creatively combine whatever other skill set and life experiences they have in their lives that deserve to be matched up with their clinical skills to deliver really unique mental health care. So this space is almost equal part for the client and it is for building a platform and a space for clinicians to come on board and see fewer clients in a day. That's a big value of ours. Higher value placed on research, preparation with clients, um, care plans, and also high value on um, out of the box approaches to, you know, keeping it evidence-based, but also thinking outside the box. So.
1: Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire?
0: I have. Who's coming with me? (laughs) Who's coming with me besides Flipper?
1: Yeah. I literally was just watching the first part of that the other night. And he's talking about less clients, more personal attention when he writes his mission statement. So. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, I uh, had some moments in my social work career where I worked at a public uh, organization, nonprofit, very large. I saw eight to nine clients in a day, mm-hmm. uh, really high needs clients. These were high trauma cases. And I approached my supervisor one day and said, listen, you know, by like two in the afternoon, I'm starting to do my grocery list. I'm like checking out. I'm really sort of like, it's human nature. I mean, you are in someone else's life if you're doing it with intentionality and you're really in the present moment with a client, by two o'clock in the afternoon, you, it's pretty natural to be kind of checked out. And uh, she didn't seem, it didn't seem to connect what I was asking for. And so I was more explicit. How about I change my schedule around or what's happening with the reduction of caseloads? And she just sort of was like, eh, it just happens. And I thought, and I had had enough experiences at that point with caseloads. And I'm like, this, this, I am doing, I am kicking the can. I am straight up kicking the can and just running my notes through, plugging things away. Um, Then I worked for a private company and thought, okay, this is going to be great. I'm going to have lower caseload. I had a kind of a bit of a smaller caseload, but, but tons and tons and tons and tons of paperwork and the paperwork did not have to do with you, Scott, the client, the paperwork had to do with making sure that your diagnosis was so we could get more insurance time. Yeah. Uh, so I just got in that, by that point I had become cynical enough where it was somewhat dangerous in terms of like my distaste for the system and what I was going to do with that. So, um, Fewer clients in a day is a huge, we value time. My, one of my household's most valued commodities is our time. And so thinking about what we can do to keep practitioners in this field doing great work is honoring their time, honoring that we expect you to be fully present and engaged with your clients and to do the prep work for a client. So we're not kicking the can with Scott for 20 years. That we're doing yeah. the work and he's back out there. Um, and that transcends into our business model and how we set our practitioners up with, like, kind of a minimum threshold of caseloads and um, really believe in that and value what they've put into their career at this point and believe that um, they should be uh, invested in that way. So.
1: Good for you. I mean, clients deserve that. They deserve someone's full, undivided attention the same way at 4 p.m. as they would get at 8 a.m. So um, good for you for having that philosophy. Last question on blend, and then we'll start to wrap this up. And you can tell me if this is an absolutely impossible question to answer, but we're all individuals. We're all here right now for some combination, complex combination of nature, nurture, and the choices we made based on that. But you've obviously been doing this for a very long period of time, and you've seen a lot of people struggling with a lot of different things. And there is a stigma around mental health, and I think we all suffer through our bouts of anxiety, of maybe depression, of different things going on. And I always like to try to give the audience tools and strategies that they can implement into their own life. Is there any question or any starting point that you would have people out there if they're listening to this right now, and maybe they are a little bit depressed on what's going on in our world with COVID and everything else, or maybe they're feeling really anxious about the uncertain future. Is there something that you would have people do where it's like, okay, when you get off of this podcast, just go do this or ask Mm -hmm. yourself that? To maybe be able to uncover some insights or something as far as how they could potentially move forward if they're not ready to, like, I'm going to come see Brooke at Blend or I'm going to go see a mental health professional.
0: Yeah, so not impossible. I mean, I have many different suggestions. One important piece that you mentioned a couple times when you asked the question was a feeling. So I always encourage individuals to trust your body. I'm a firm believer, physiologically, neurologically, in our bodies. We know, you really know yourself. Humans nowadays do an excellent job detaching themselves from their brains and their bodies to other people, and we, the people just stick to other things. But when you're on your drive home, when you're in that quiet moment, you're washing the dishes, when you feel that feeling, it's there. So, A trust it, notice it, draw awareness to it, it's okay that you don't do anything with it right away.
1: A feeling of like anxiousness or or sadness or... Yes,
0: yes. And that you don't have to... Naming it can be difficult because we've not raised ourselves in a way where we know how to name anything other than good or bad or sad, happy. Mm -hmm. Um, Our ability to be okay with coexisting in the long range of emotions is unfortunate. We've told people that anxiety is is not good. It's not good. No, actually it serves us really well as human beings. We've needed a degree of anxiety to be able to function and evolve as human beings. There is good anxiety that exists. It's there. So, you know, again, paying attention to the feeling. If you don't know how to name it or what it's connected to, that's less important than starting to just notice that it keeps showing up. Is it in your gut? Is it in your heart? Is it in your head? You start to feel fatigued. Um, and spending like quiet. Just take a hot minute to just not meditate, not do yoga. I'm not even asking you to have be mindful. Just quiet and pay attention to what happens in the quiet. Again, I will go on a rant about our inability to be secure with ourselves enough to get to know ourselves again and some of it begins with noticing that feeling drawing awareness to it and knowing that that's that's you somewhere in there and most of the time folks have lost track of all of it because we've got so much lot like, going on in life is and that life, just a
1: distraction but- thing or is there something else going on that leads to that insecurity or that inability for us to be secure with ourselves
0: Uh, I think, whoa, that's, uh, attachment, childhood environment coupled with.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) If you're listening to this, Brooke Brooke
1: just held up her phone. If, uh, if you're not watching this on YouTube. Yeah. If
0: you really want my tool of before you see any kind of mental health care professional and you're trying to track your feelings and you're starting to sort of like connect with them a little bit more and you have this like hunch, like you've started the fire. You're like, okay, something's going on. It just doesn't feel right. You don't need to name it. You don't need to put language around it. It might not be, it might not be anything, but pay attention mm-hmm. and begin to explore as if you were like a little scientist, how, how is this leaking into other aspects of my life? Mm-hmm. That's usually where then it becomes disruptive enough to seek additional support and to interview practitioners over and over again. It, like to find until you feel like, ah, I'm being seen, I'm being heard. Mm-hmm. Someone's pain. Not that they have this perfect roadmap or anything else, but that you're in a position where you feel seen and heard. Um, and the insecurities, we just, when, I, when folks ask me for tips and tricks, I mean, one of them is, is absolutely not having your phone near your bed at night or in the morning. Like that thing needs to be in another room. And sleep. I'm a huge sleep advocate. So I really get after people on sleep um, in terms of like so, practicing things at home uh, in order to decrease anxiety and noise in their lives. So
1: So let's maybe continue on on that. And I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions and then I'll let you out of here. But personally speaking, for you showing up as the best outperforming version of Brooke, because you've obviously been not only very high achieving in a lot of areas, but you also seem to be very fulfilled with what you're doing. What are some of the most valuable daily practices or routines that you try to make sure that you do repeatedly or every single day that allow you to outperform?
0: simple, folks. And it's simple and often feels like it's a thousand miles away. But sleep is huge for me. How many hours
1: a night do you sleep?
0: I get eight hours, no less than six. Could I work 15 hours a day? Absolutely yes. But that goes back to conviction versus hard work and the ability to be able to be patient in the slow growth. And that sleep is cognitively, neurologically, and physiologically attached to so much of what's happening during your performance peak hours during the day. Mm -hmm. What happens during each phase of sleep absolutely impacts our ability to navigate and retain information throughout the remainder of the next day, and it feeds into your metabolism and your mood regulation and emotions. So sleep, super important. Um, I have an evening routine where I'm shutting things down and shutting things off. Um, I pay attention more and more to what I need, despite all the people that may need me in my life. And I know that even if I'm spending just 10 minutes to myself in the evening, just kind of listening to music or like just zoning out, looking at a tree or something, that that's important for me to wind down. Uh, and my morning routine is probably more important than my evening routine. So I wake up at the same time every day. I have an alarm clock cause my phone is in my kitchen.
1: What time do you wake up?
0: Five 30. Uh, and I started practicing. Uh, this is important. I used to fly out of bed, like jump, like I'm after it. I'm going, 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 going. I'm already thinking of all the things I, So one thing that I've started to practice in the morning, and this has been probably a year and a half now. So now it doesn't even feel like I'm practicing like what I call slow exit out of the bed. I sort of like allow myself to like sit there for a minute, stare at the ceiling. I actually sit up in my bed with my feet on the floor, move my neck around a little like yoga, some yoga stuff, breathe, get up. I have a huge jug of, lemon water next to my bed or water i don't it's just it's water lemon or not i drink the entire container uh and then i have a little coffee ritual in my room and i'm a mother of 3 boys so there's a reason why my coffee pot is in my room that's a self care tactic for me to know that like i can put my coffee together i can sit down i can start writing i can start thinking about my day not in a goal setting way it is here's what is in front of me today. Here's what I have going on. I'm gonna do a little creative writing. That's where my creative juices are best, is in the morning. Um, and then I take a shower. In COVID, I get dressed. I curl my I do everything. And then I usually I start like work. Work happens like at 7:30 or 8. So it's and I might run. 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I do some sort of physical something, but I am pretty active throughout my day anyway. I take little, like mini little, I just, I have three boys. So, like, the chance to go on a bike ride or like play 1v1 in basketball, it just happens throughout my day. So, um yeah. And then I um, am just very mindful of where my attention and energy is put. I have really laser focused where my energy on interpersonal relationships belong, where it does not belong, where my interpersonal energy is best fostered and stewarded, who I need to spend time with to help me continue to look at my blind spots. I've got two people that help me, uh, both professionally and personally, and they're kind of connected. So, um, one's kind of like a performance coach and one is a little bit more like a, it's a therapist. So, um, I will keep doing that. I cannot be my own surgeon. (laughs) So um, those are big, big practices and I know that they will change. I think the biggest part is I have some non-negotiables and then what I do is just create a toolbox that I can keep. I know that's sort of cliche, but I have a big toolbox and I know things that work for me and I know the non-negotiables. And for me, non-negotiables are sleep, I'm not dealing with shitty people. And for me, I don't drink alcohol anymore. Like that was a big part of my story in terms of like, it's done. So yep. non-negotiables.
1: How um, long ago did you cut alcohol out?
0: I am almost, it's probably, I tried many, many times, uh, but it's almost been about 22 months. So it's almost over a year and a half, almost two years here wow. So Wow. That's made a big difference. Um, that's a whole other podcast that I'm happy to talk <laughs> about. Uh, but so seriously, I mean, it really, Um, I, again, I was a high-functioning, very stable, high-performing person um, that didn't give myself enough time to pay attention to that feeling that that was getting in the way too. Yeah. That um, you're not performing as well as you think you are because you still have something that keeps getting in your way even though you know how to control and manage it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so, maybe we'll do a second round of the podcast. That's my jam.
1: Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll do another podcast oh, and, and get I, into it. I
0: fast, yeah. I'm I'm happy to, yeah. And I fast until like noon. Yeah. yeah. So there's no breakfast for me. So that's like kind of another part of my like and my coffee ritual. So I have a pretty legit coffee situation going on. So I have not dropped that habit. There's that's a non-negotiable.
1: There you go. Yep. We all need our coffee. Uh, me included. So if are you still there with me, Brooke? All right. You you're cutting out a little bit there. Yes, I'm here. Um, if uh, people would like to learn a little bit more about you, connect with you, learn about Blend, where would you like them to go to be able to do that?
0: I'd love them to go to our website or me because then I can like get you in touch with our practitioners. So our website is blndhealth.com. The same goes for Instagram. You can really catch our flavor, our feel, our community on Instagram, which is at BlendHealth. Mm-hmm. Um, or Brooke Buys at BlendHealth.com. And I will have coffee with you over the computer, chat, and then see if we can help you or refer you elsewhere. We love doing that, too, getting people in the right hands. We love getting to know other folks in the community and in the world, like you, like other folks that are in this same wheelhouse. So we. Know a better sense of our network for our clients. Mm
1: -hmm. So, and for everybody listening, I will put links to social media as well as website and everything else in the show notes of this episode. Brooke, any other words of wisdom you would like to leave with the outperforming audience as we sign off?
0: Be still, get quiet, have fun, light your fire, get the match, light that, and let it burn. That is like the true sense of who you are it is in you it is there just light it move it go
1: i love it light the match conviction
0: i love it as my,
1: as my <laughs> conviction say, you intentionality
0: just say, yeah you wouldn't just say it with like he would use his hands and say with conviction so <laughs> really think about it and do it time its right. not, not getting any more of it folks so
1: well, Brooke, oh, on God. behalf of all the outperformers watching, listening, we want to thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us today. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: And everybody out there, wishing you the best of health, happiness, high performance, and keep performing. Have a great day. Hello, outperformers. Three more quick things before we sign off here today. First and foremost, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I understand how many different podcasts are out there and I do not take a single second of your time for granted because time is truly our most valuable asset. It is our most precious commodity and I appreciate you taking that time and you spending it with us here today. Second, if you found value in this podcast, maybe you've noticed, but podcasting has gotten quite popular as of late. And if you would like to help support the outperforming movement and the outperform podcast, one of the best ways that we can get it found is for you to give it a favorable review and rating on whatever your favorite podcasting platform happens to be. So head on over to iTunes, head on over to Google Play, and give it a favorable review. And while you do that, also share it with someone else that you know that is just like you, is driven by growth and wanting to be the best personally and professionally in every single thing that they do. Number three, if you want even more, tools and tips and strategies to be able to be your best personally and professionally head on over to scottwelly.com that's s c o t t w e l l e there are loads of different resources for you on everything from goal setting and grit to resiliency and focus to confidence and motivation and routines and habits and everything that you can possibly imagine to help you be your absolute best every single day, personally and professionally. Once again, if you'd like to access those free resources, head on over to scottwelly.com. S-C-O-T-T-W-E-L-L-E. So as I sign off, thank you again for spending your time with me here today. Keep outperforming and as always, wish you the best of health, happiness and high performance. Have a great day.